Good morning. Doctor Who. Let's kick off this week's playback with something just a little bit different. News schmooze for once. And that was the distinctive sound of pioneering electronic composer Delia Derbyshire, whose work and the work of other early electronic pioneers has influenced Northern Irish composer Hannah Peel. She's coming to Dublin and she spoke to Sean on Arena. We think electronic now and we think of all the stuff that you can do with computers and synthesizers and all of the rest of it. This was kind of electronic music from first principles that they that uh, Dar- Derbyshire and her colleagues were involved in. Yes, absolutely. Um, they sampled, and um, actually, one of the things that Delia is well known for is sampling her light, like one of those angle poise lights um, that you find in in art spaces and offices now. But she sampled that. It recorded it to tape, made beats out of it. And some of her early stuff, you could say, sounds like early dance music. It's incredible, actually, labouring hours over tape and cutting the tape and splicing it and using that to create sounds that we and I do in particular very easily now with samplers and machines and and our computers. And it was her work and that of others which led to Peel's latest album, Furwave. In the 70s, there was an album that Delia and two of her other colleagues from the Radiophonic Workshop did under different pseudonyms uh, called Electrosonic, which was music written for like science laboratories. Uh, You can almost imagine kind of Soviet labs (laughs) and nuclear experimentations happening. Uh, This library, KPM, had said to me, look, you can do whatever you want with this record, make it into anything you want, but we want you to make a new electronic records so what I kind of did was instead of I guess remixing a record I sampled the sounds that are from that original album and made them into new instruments and part of the live show is me playing those original sounds. And this is how she described the track Emergence in nature. When you're playing it, you'll hear loads of kind of like little, um, I guess they sound like bubbles and there's just all the kind of odd sounds. They're, they're all lifted from that elect- original electronic record. And I guess, you know, that record was made at a time when a science and things were developing at such a rate and it was quite prominent in people's minds. Whereas when I was making Furwave, it was all, it's, and still is, to do with the ecosystem, being more connected to nature And so a lot of the tracks made their way into kind of patterns and especially Mm. living in County Down and on the Belfast Lock, seeing the sea come in and out every single day, the planes, the ferries and being part of that kind of ecosystem really influenced the record. And I wanted something that was really fun and upbeat. And that's, you know, how Emergence kind of came about, really.
few beats to get us going. But now to those headlines. This week, covert influencing operations on TikTok. Staggering stuff. With Anya on Morning Ireland, Naomi O'Leary, Europe correspondent for the Irish Times. TikTok reported that it discovered a network, what it calls a covert influence operation of 72 accounts, which had collectively um, almost 100,000 followers following them on TikTok. And they say that the individuals behind this network created inauthentic accounts and they hyper posted content with divisive views related to nationalism. Um, And they say um, in TikTok's words that this was intended to intensify social conflict. Conflict. Um, this was reported in a uh, document that was produced by TikTok under a new agreement with the European Commission, which is aimed to sort of show uh, the scale of disinformation on online networks and what they're doing about it. It's pretty startling, isn't it? It's interesting um, that there was one that was targeting Ireland. Uh, this particular network was shut down earlier this year. And it's not the only um, European country that was targeted. Uh, Another covert influence network was found to be targeting Germany. And that was originating in Russia. And that was a a network of over 3000 accounts with collectively nearly half a million followers that were posting about the war in Ukraine Mm -hmm. and the uh, consequences on the economies of EU countries. And this kind of thing, not just confined to TikTok. The Facebook owner Meta also um, made its report under this agreement with the Commission and it reported finding several inauthentic networks on Facebook which were originating from China and were um, uh, posting lots of content aimed at reaching overseas Chinese communities and the Uyghur community internationally, which is quite interesting, as well as one um, Mm -hmm. originating in Iran. We're really just scratching the surface here of the extent of the disinformation online and also the deliberate attempts that there are to to foster it. And disinformation and that attempt to influence may have very, very serious outcomes. And next year is a year when in Ireland we have local elections right across Europe. There'll be European elections in the United States. There'll be a presidential election. So disinformation online is more important than ever, isn't it? And of course, X, um, they're not part of this European code of conduct, are they? That's right. So earlier this week, um, the European Commission unveiled some of these results from its agreement with the social media companies and pointed out that under the new uh, owner, Elon Musk, X or Twitter had withdrawn from this code of conduct. So it didn't provide any information for Twitter. But based on their studies, they said Twitter was the platform with the highest prevalence of disinformation and the easiest discoverability of disinformation. Um, So the the Commission Vice President, Vera Jourova, really raised the alarm uh, specifically linking this issue to the upcoming elections and she said what's particularly concerning is potentially the combination of disinformation false information online with the use of AI because if you could have automatic artificial intelligent networks uh, posting this stuff the volume of it could increase hugely um, and it could also be trained to be highly effective. And even if it's um, corrected afterwards if you've seen an image that looks like someone you believe is that person saying something they didn't say, it's very hard to erase from your memory. 
Yes, and that is something that is happening in Ireland. So we know from uh, YouTube, uh, which is owned by Google, they they reported that they had found 15 vi uh, videos uploaded in Ireland that were that kind of content. They were deliberately misleading or manipulated media. Um, and they'd removed 15 of those videos, two of which had had a really significant reach of up to 10,000 views. Um, so this is something that's really starting to take off. Brave new world indeed. Naomi O'Leary, thank you. From Morning Ireland, and if you're longing for simpler times, sorry, not sure we can help you. Maybe. But our ancient world, it turns out, was also complex, albeit in a different way. With Claire, Moncon McGann, whose latest book is called Wolfmen and Waterhounds, The Myths, Monsters and Magic of Ireland. For some reason, our ancestors believed that the world was alive, was animated, and there were almost like portals or thresholds that you could access the other world. And that's a gorgeous idea because that reconnects us with the world, with with like our landscape again. And if we feel Re, you know, connected to our landscape, which obviously our ancestors have done as long as we've been here for 6,000 years, maybe longer, you know, the, the people who came before us. That means you sort of protect the land and that means you think about, oh, this land is actually a spirit and it's helping me and communicating me and I need to help it. That almost mm. that indigenous idea that, you know, you give something to the soil and it gives something back. And I think that's what so many of these mystery stories in our culture are trying to tell us. And the wolfmen of the title, well, if your surname is Whelan, Fuelon or Phelan, listen up. So Fuelon is either person of the wolf or lover of the wolf or killer of the wolf or person who is the spirit of the wolf. It's a human who's connected in some way to the wolf. And, you know, it's, so Whelans and Phelans. Yeah, they, either have the, they either had the spirit of the wolf within them or they might have been wolf killers or wolf lovers or they might have been descended from wolves. Mm -hmm. And as you say, particularly around Ossery. And what I love about Ossery, when we were growing up, the only time we heard of Ossery in Kilkenny was like the Bishop of Ossery. Yeah. Was, you know, and Oss means, it's an old word for deer. So these were the people who were of the cult of the deer or who, who worshipped the deer or was some way connected to the deer. And so their greatest enemy were these wolfmen, these whale uh, fuel, or whale people. You know, whale was a, means wild, but also particularly means uh, wolf. And so there were stories that the local kings of Ossery, which was in the area of like Kilkenny and Leash, were descended from this particular wolfman who during the day was a was a human, but then at night to go hunting would would spring hair on his on his whole body and long fangs from his mouth. And Lainach uh, Faled was his name. So either all the kings up until the 12th century descended from him, and even in the 14th century, there's accounts saying, "Oh yeah, this man is descended from the wolf." Like what a beautiful thing that in our history, in our recorded history, we have this connection with the mythic world. That the history and the mythic were one. And in every area, there's these places and within the places, encoded within the places, are these stories of when we believed the world had, mm -hmm. our land had spirits within and it. And now we have no wolves. Now we've no wolves. The last wolf, in other words, yeah, Cromwell made this huge attempt to try and kill off the wolves of Ireland as these sealed them of a while. Well, so I think the last one's recorded about 1786 okay, in Carlo. with Claire. And more books, this time at nine, Brendan Courtney's book to comedian Jason Byrne. His new book is Memoirs of a Wonky-Eyed Man the Dad Knows Best Years. So why the wonky eye? Doctors now <laughs> will bring you up, bring parents to the side to describe something that's a little bit scarier. But I'm sitting in the doctor's, and you know, and he's going, your child has a lazy eye. That's just like, and I'm going, well, what? what do I have? It's lazy. Now we're going to have to put a patch on the good eye to get that, that lazy eye moving. So in my head for years, I thought, 
my eye was lazy. I thought my eye just wow. w- was just wouldn't just get up out of bed or start moving. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and I was going, yeah. and look at me, look at my eye in the Didn't mirror. Didn't want to go, do his homework. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I'm going. I'm not a lazy person. Straighten, straighten. <laughs> so yeah, that's so we call it the wonky eye boy because I ended up doing stand up in uh, live at the Apollo in, right. in BBC, and I did a whole routine about me having my patch in my eye, and that basically it was. Look, to put a patch on, like put a patch on kids' eyes now, is a, it's kind of cool because they have pirates and different things. I just had a big brown plaster. And my eye, my, my mum drew an eye on the on the patch. Oh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> she drew an eye on the patch. To... I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> yeah, she drew an eye on the patch. she go, you'd be grand now. It looked like you have two eyes. And she wasn't an artist. No, no, no. There was, I had, there was, and I'm pretty sure she would have put eyelashes on oh, the stuff. You're actually making me cry. Oh, my goodness. Now, a lot of this book and his play concerns his late father, who he refers to as Paddy Lama. Because my dad would never like run around and run around, go mad, like just losing the plot. It was just take it easy. Mm. When the recession hit, I was like, oh my God, the recession 2007. My dad's sitting at the back with a fag in the shed. I go, dad, there's a recession out there. He goes, yeah, no. He goes, I think this is my fifth recession. Yeah. You know, so, so he, so. There's nothing to gain, my dad, you know, would think this as well. There's, there's nothing to gain by losing the head. And Jason Byrne talked about being by his father's side when he died. I was, I was an absolute pleasure to be with him when when, when he died. And it was great because, uh, I don't know, I've never seen anybody pass. And I thought, if you ask me to do it now, and my dad, like, he, let's say he was going to pass it in a year. I go, there's no way I'm going, I don't want to be there. Yeah. But thank God, whatever our uh, our makeup as humans is amazing. The way we can just click and, and just, you know, morph into the situation. And so my dad was there and my aunties, my mum was just outside, my sisters. And I said, and I held his hand and his hand was always uh, gripping because he, he had a stroke. So when he had his right hand that was ever working near the end and um, was holding his hand and my, the, 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 oh my God, the nurse is there. I don't know how they do it. Where, where was it? It was in James's. Okay. Yeah. And the nurse there, uh, they're going, so he, you know, you start, he starts to, starting to pass is not, to watch that is not for everybody. No. So I mean, because yeah. what happens, and so, uh, he, the nurse was brilliant. They're going, just keep holding his hand. Tell him, tell him it's okay. Keep talking to him, and like he goes, he can hear you, you know. And the and the 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 um, my both my aunties were. Oh my god, I was, I wasn't. You don't cry. It's just really no. weird. And my aunties didn't cry. It was like this hard stone thing to get put because get, it's for your dad you're doing it. And you're just going, it's okay, dad, it's okay. And then you just see him starting to go. And then and then that's it. I, I watched him, his his, his, his body kind of sink. Yeah. So it's a, obviously, I, I, this is how I look at it. It doesn't matter what you believe in or whatever you believe in, but there's definitely an energy in your body. So you can see, I watched it all just leave, leave. his body. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so then that's, that can be, that can be his version of his soul. Do you know what I mean? hundred percent. And as Jason talked to Brendan, you could hear just how much crack his dad knocked out of Jason's career, including the time that when he was 24, he was in the audience of The Late Late Show. And you get a ticket. You don't tell the Late Late Show audience. Gay <laughs> Byrne is hosting Late Late Show at the time. And Bill Murray, ghost busting Bill Murray, is on thing. And you put your hand up and you ask this question. Let's have a yeah. listen. Yeah, hi. Hi, yeah, just a uh, question for Bill. Bill. Uh, Bill, I've seen your voice. film, uh, Ghostbusters, and thought it was very good. Oh, God. And um, it influenced me and a couple of friends just to start up our own um, Irish Ghostbusters, as it's, as it's known. And... Um, 
what we do is we haven't had much luck with people now, so uh, we we work on farm animals, possessed pigs and sheep and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, uh, he's getting my, interested. Yeah, yes. I can see. Yes, I got, oh, got yes. you there, Bill. Uh, the question is, uh, Bill, have you ever seen a ghost? And if so, were you ever frightened? Were you ever frightened? Yes. As a matter of fact, I saw one just. 20 minutes. What's the place called? Roll, Rollies? Rollies. Rollies. Rollies Bistro. Do you know Rollies Bistro? Just down the road. It's a frightening moment. And I know you know what I'm talking about. Uh, a waiter came, yeah. took my order, and disappeared. What an answer. What an answer. Yeah, what, yeah. Were you, like, that must have been one of the most exciting, terrifying things you've ever done. Terrifying. I was on my own. Nobody knew me either side or nothing. Nobody. I was on your own. Yeah, and I was in the green room here, or not the green room, but the holding room where all the audience, and I was pretending to be this weird nerd. <laughs> and then, so Gay Byrne taught Bill Murray set it up. Bill Murray taught Gay Byrne set it up. You could see their faces going, who's this guy? Who's well. let him in? And I just did it. And then afterwards, uh, more horror because uh, <laughs> it was all over and I thought, right, I'll get out of here. And Gay went, well, tonight is a special occasion. You've all won a trip to the Shelburne we all have to get in buses and I have to keep the character up all the way to the Shelburne I have to stay I don't have to ring me dad and go dad can you get me I'm stuck in town and he went me and your mother just watched you on the late late what in the name of God are you doing on the late late show? what did he think he had no idea really no was he proud of you though oh yeah yeah. he was telling everybody in the pub then pushing it see Jason there he bunked into the late because he loved, he loved it you know he but loved it, all that I'm Oh, that is quite deadly. Jason Byrne with Brendan. Back in a bit. Welcome back. There was a lot on the radio this week on how to live, or rather, how to live well. Calm in the face of chaos, serene with your loved ones, resilient in adversity, joyful on the dance floor. In short, a living saint. Or maybe just ever so slightly less of a mess. On Liveline, Shirley, she has an Instagram account promoting well-being. However, she got a random message telling her her reels were terrible, boring. She was upset she blocked the person. But it did prompt her to post about that nasty message. And she asked people to be kinder if they're online. It just gained traction day after day with this tsunami of kindness and love and It's just been amazing. And yesterday I woke up and it has been viewed by one million people. Wow. And her own backstory is quite interesting. She had left the corporate world to become a holistic therapist after becoming burnt out. We use the term burnout, we kind of bandy it about a bit. But is there like, how do you define actual burnout? Because a lot of people are kind of exhausted, a little bit worn out, a little bit... I love that question, Katie, because I agree with you. It's a little bit like versus a cold versus the flu. Um, And I think it's on a sliding scale. So I don't think one person's experience is worse than others. But what I had was at the very high um, end of the sliding scale. So I really could no longer cope. So I had like extreme fatigue and then for the first time in my life I experienced anxiety, panic attacks and depression and I was out of work for six months Um, and I was somebody like in my mid-40s that never had, you know, experienced any mental health challenges so I just literally lost the ability to cope from, you know, as a response to kind of sustained stress So, like, I learned so much from it because we often think, you know, we can all deal with stressful moments, 
if there's enough time in between to recover. But what's happening in our world right now is most people are existing at a kind of a heightened, sustained stress, and they become so used to it. But it's like turning the temperature up, you know, bit by bit in water. If you have your finger in it, you, your body will keep adjusting. But it'll get to the stage where that water gets too hot and you can't deal with it anymore. The fatigue is setting in, the disinterest in work, the lack of interest maybe in socialising, sleeping full eight hours but waking up still tired. Like, they're all, you know, big red flags. And regardless of your work at home or in an office or building site, the cult of busy, not great. If you just look at our lives as it is and the rushing and the racing, from the time most people get up in the morning, their head is 20 paces ahead of their body before their feet ever touch the ground. They're planning with military precision what time they'll have breakfast, what time they'll get people out, what time they'll get da 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 And while that sounds like just planning and organising, every time you're doing that, your adrenal glands are shooting off adrenaline and cortisol to keep you going. And that's so you can have stress in the body without ever having stress in the mind. It actually really hits the body first. But what I will tell you is Mm -hmm. that the majority of people that it happens to are conscientious high achievers. It is very rare, and I have yet to come across a lazy person who suffered burnout. But stress is a part of life. However, too much of it and sustained... Well, she used this analogy. You have got to look at it like boiling water. It will soften a spud and it will harden an egg. So there's nothing wrong with boiling water. You have to look at it as the environment and you have to just make sure that you're in the right environment. And if you're not, get out. If you are, maybe you turn the temperature down. Well, I have to say, Shirley, I now know why a million people might want to be looking at your Instagram (laughs) reels. (laughs) With Miriam on Sunday, one of the fathers of wellness. Before the term was invented and goop was just a funny word, there was Dr Deepak Chopra. The remarkable thing about you, of course, is everyone today is aware of mindfulness and wellness and minding our mind. But you were doing that donkeys years ago. I mean, how did you first get into this area? I was a resident uh, in medicine in the Boston area and I was actually quite burnt out myself. I was maybe late 20s, but I was smoking heavily. I used to drink uh, at least on weekends quite heavily. And, uh, you know, one day I put a pacemaker in a patient, put him on a ventilator and went, outside the hospital to smoke a cigarette and I felt totally disgusted, threw it away and never touched alcohol after that. And he maintains it is quite possible to have a stress-free life. Honest. But in order to do that, we need to accept that really our lives are in the lap of the gods. Change, the only constant. Unpredictability, just the way it is. I realised a long time ago there's only two choices. One is resistance to existence and the other is what we call flow or peak performance or peak living. And resistance to existence comes from four illusions. So the first illusion is predictability. There's no such thing. 
even the weather, you can predict likelihood, but not certainty. And illness the same way, or life the same way, relationships the same way. Once you realize that predictability is an illusion, the second realization is control is an illusion. There's no such thing, because everything has so many factors influencing every incident is literally a conspiracy of improbabilities. So control is an illusion. The third thing is identity is an illusion. There's no fixed identity. Say, who's Deepak? Well, which Deepak do you mean? The child, the teenager, the adult, all the way to dusty death. And in fact, identity is constantly transforming. If it didn't, you'd be worried. And if your child didn't grow up to be a teenager or your teenager didn't grow up to be an adult, you'd be worried. So there's no such thing as a fixed identity. And finally, there's no such thing as time. That's also an illusion. Once you recognize these are illusions, you don't resist what's happening right now. You go with the flow. Oh, Deepak, you make it sound so easy. But on time, he was very interesting. But when you say there's no such thing as time, Hmm? what do you mean by that? Time is the internal dialogue of the ego. So there's something called clock time and there's something called perceived or experienced time. We say, I'm running out of time. When people say that, their heart rate speeds up, their blood pressure goes up. If they have all the time in the world, everything is different. If they fall in love, time doesn't exist. So time, as Einstein showed, in another way, is relative. It, uh, it depends in his mathematics. It depend, metaphorically speaking, it's very interesting on the speed of the observer. You know, so if you're going at the speed of light, there's no time. If you're near a black hole, time slows down. If you enter the singularity, there's no time. So time is a human construct for how we experience life, which is really cyclical and circular. If you look at some traditional shamanic traditions and even people who had psychedelic experiences, they have a more fractal, holographic, holomovement rendering of time, which is universal. And it's not Greenwich Mean Time. That's a colonial uh, history. We don't say Botswana Mean Time or Bangladesh Mean Time. We say Greenwich Mean Time. We made it up, just like we made up everything. Latitude, longitude, money, Wall Street. These are human constructs. They're not fundamental reality. But how, Miriam wondered, can we find the time to sit and meditate? Deepak, oh, disappointed. How do you put time away to meditate? And what's the minimum amount you can meditate that will make a difference so to your life? So that's a very Western question. Fair uh, enough. And uh, in fact, a very impractical question. Only busy people have time, in my opinion. It depends on what your priorities are. If you say, I don't have time, you'd probably need more of it than anybody else because you're stressed. Okay, no time. People who have that internal dialogue, I have no time. As I said, everything is fast in their biology and if they suddenly drop dead of a heart attack, then they fulfill the prophecy, I don't have time. I never had time. So that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's called death. Okay, start with that. And then the real reason to do meditation is actually 
not stress relief. That's a Western idea also. The real reason to do meditation is to get in touch with your spirit, with your soul, which is the source of all experience, including your creativity, how you organize your life, whether you have a joyful, energetic body, a loving heart, or creativity, those are worthwhile things. So actually meditation allows you to do less and achieve more. And in my case, do nothing and achieve everything. If he does say so himself, Deepak Chopra with Miriam. But if you're not feeling entirely chipper after all that flow, a little blocked, chakras a bit grubby... Don't worry, it might just be a question of waiting. Joining Sarah and Cormac, Dr. Paul Dalton, Associate Professor of Psychology at UCD. So you two mightn't want to hear this, oh. actually. <laughs> it, 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 it seems, when you look at the prevalence of anxiety across the world, so about one in five of us will experience significant anxiety across the, co- the course of our lives. One in five. Now, you're most likely to experience that between 35 and 55. Oh, yeah. Sorry now to say it, but, mm-hmm. but th- th- that's the window, Cormac, it where it's going to. Well, <laughs> um, is it? <laughs> so you know, sir, there's a there's a, a there's a theory. It's called it's called U-shaped happiness. Mm. So uh, when we come into the world, all going well, um, our, our, our happiness is is at its highest, um, and it begins to drop and drop and drop and drop until you get to about 40 and then it flattens. Oh, God. Re- yeah, yeah, yeah. Cormac, yeah. the bottom of the curve, Cormac. <laughs> the yeah. re- it's all making but, sense. But, but, but come here, the yeah. really good news is, the really good news is U-shaped. So okay. the ha- the happiness increases. When will we start but, going up but, again? But, but, but when, you, when you get to 50 there. Oh. When, uh, <laughs> when, no, you, but you know... So the- Hang on in there. And at the happy end of that U-shape, perhaps those in their later years, the demographic at the heart of The Last Devil to Die, the latest in the Thursday Murder Club series by Richard Osman. He spoke to Brendan at the weekend about the joys and pleasures of just not giving a damn. If we were to age well, part of it is appreciating, yeah, I can do what I want now. Consequences are limited, aren't they? Well, that's it. There's, you know, I think various characters, you know, Elizabeth, who was the former spy for her whole life, she's obviously been, you know, the official secrets act has meant that she can't talk about what she's done. But now at 80, she's sort of saying, well, what are they going to do to me? Yeah. You know, they're not going to put me in court. They're not going to put me in prison. I'm 80. You know, it's not, they're not going to do it. And, you know, various points, people say the only people who can tell you what to do when you're 80 are your children and your doctors. Everyone else, you do, you, <laughs> you know, you do it because... What what are people going to do? You sort of get to the age where you realise that actually most threats are sort of um, meaningless and you, you, you can sort of be naughty if you want to be. All bets are off. And after the break, the Roman Empire, which, if you're a man, you've probably been thinking about all morning. Back in a bit. Welcome back. As promised, the Roman Empire. And according to TikTok, it is on men's minds a lot. The hashtag Roman Empire has been viewed well over a billion times, with most videos aimed at asking men the question how often they think about the Roman Empire. On Drive Time, Dr Martin Worthington, Associate Professor of Ancient History at Trinity College, had a theory. Can I first of all just say that whoever ignited this trend gets a massive (laughs) thumbs up from me. It's hilarious. I think it also have been spinning this round in my mind. I think it sort of triangulates three different things. It triangulates the Roman Empire and human psychology and gender slash gender identity. 
However, before we get too into it, would this TikTok trend pass muster in Trinity? Doubtful. Obviously, so far, this isn't a scientific study. I think the methodology is so full of holes, it might as well be sold in Switzerland (laughs) on the cheese counter. (laughs) Nevertheless, he had some thoughts. One of the most interesting things about this is that these people tell us that they're quote-unquote thinking about the Roman Empire, whatever that means. And I may well be wrong, but I rather suspect that a lot of these people don't really know very much about the Roman Empire. So when they say they're thinking about it, they're thinking about highly selected edits. They're thinking about the clash of arms, the steel, the glory of the legions, the marching thunder rolling across as the armies spread across Europe, Um, which isn't quite the same thing about as the Roman Empire. Now, Cormac didn't say how often he thought of, say, Julius Caesar, but he did ask this question. The sphere of influence of the Roman Empire is so vast. The question really should be, why aren't women thinking about the Roman Empire? Well... Uh, it is a very line, interesting question. Yeah. No, it, it is a very interesting <laughs> question. One of the things about this whole thing is I do wonder if it has to do with reactions to gender fluidity. So we now live in a world where gender fluidity is official and people say they're gender fluid, whereas this story would tend to seem to go in the direction of saying there are real differences between men and women. And of course, if people are unsettled by this idea of gender fluidity, that would be a reassurance on some level. I'm not saying that's a good thing. Right, so you're saying that this maybe stems from an effort to reinforce the, the binary gender situation, is that it? Conscious or unconscious, I wonder oh if that's possible. Oh my God, this is incredible, Martin. Uh, where did you come up with that one? <laughs> <laughs> it was a chocolate bar on the bus. No, but it's interesting, I've got several students who openly identify as gender fluid and prefer yeah. the pronoun they. And so you talk to people and then you think, well, here we're talking about men and women. What does this mean? Um, what is the social construction, the man versus the woman? So what I was getting at with primary school, right, is that if you go back to primary school, when you first hear about the Roman Empire, all the role models are male. Right? You see these statues of white men standing there looking powerful. Mm-hmm. And probably there's a 2% part of your six, seven-year-old boy brain that says, wow, I could be like that. Mm-hmm. But if you're a girl, maybe it's like 0.4% instead of 2%. And mm-hmm. with that seed planted differently without people talking about it, maybe 30 years down the line this leads to different outcomes. Fascinating. It is. And then with Claire, Professor Mary Beard, author of Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient World. What was her take on the whole TikTok business? It's a kind of safe space, the ancient world is, and particularly the Roman world, for sort of having macho fantasies. You know, it's a very long time ago. Um, it, you know, it's it's all right to think about the Romans and to think about them being brutes and powerful and strong, etc., etc. You know, it wouldn't be all right to think about 20th century emperors in quite the same way. And so... Um, I think it's I think it's about male fantasy, really. Uh, and but, yeah. I'm hoping to turn it to a rather more interesting interest. In yes, interest. and one more based in fact, because a lot of those men on TikTok, <laughs> they say, oh, the battles and their, you know, their role in yeah. architecture and also in developing yeah. things like sewerage yeah. systems and the wearing of yeah. togas. Not Some of yeah. those things aren't quite right, though, are they? <laughs> Some of those things are are kind of the myths about Rome that, that people like me try to dispel, you know. I mean, Romans did not wear togas all the time. You know, the toga was the ancient Roman equivalent of the dinner jacket, right? So if you went out in the Roman street, you'd have seen people in brightly coloured tunics, probably even trousers, and they put on togas to go to special occasions. And I also suspect that those guys who think about, uh, you know, Roman power, etc., 
they never imagine themselves being slaves. You know, they're always at the top of the pile when they think back. They're not ordinary people. They're not slaves. Uh, and I don't think they probably imagine the women too much. Hmm. And she was on a mission to bring some actual facts to the toga party. But to be fair, those Romans really did know how to spin their empire. They started PR, in a way. and They were the first people in the ancient world in the West to see that if you were a leader, you needed to get your image out there. So Julius Caesar, who's a kind of proto-emperor, he was the first person in Rome to have his living head on the coin. We now take that for granted. He was the first to do it. And his successor, the first proper emperor, Augustus, he flooded the Roman world with up to, you know, people think maybe 50,000 statues of himself. You know, you had to see the emperor and the emperor's brand. That was what was crucial. And living in ancient Rome might have been fabulous as long as you were at the top of the food chain. Mary, can you tell us what day-to-day life in the imperial palace was like for these people and their families and their staff? Well, we can tell quite a lot about their staff, actually, and that's what's amazing, because, you know, there's a few of the very top notch around the palace, a couple of dozen, and there's some, you know, some elite posh hangers on, but there's thousands of slaves, absolutely thousands. And we know about them because we have an awful lot of their tombstones. And they tell us what they did. Now, we can't know exactly what it's like, but they give us their job title. You know, so there's one who's the Empress's masseurs. There's the Empress's handbag carrier. There's someone who is in charge of the gold-rimmed napkins. There's back to luxurious dinners. There are people who are secretaries. There are people who are entertainers, who do after-dinner stand-up for the emperor. So you start to see that it's the palace is not just the guys at the top. It's a sort of mini city where they are um, doing these micro tasks to keep the imperial show on the road. Mm -hmm. Mary Beard with Claire. And this week, the death was announced of Michael Gambon from the singing detective to Beckett and for a whole generation, Dumbledore. He was born in Cabra, in Dublin. You know, I, I've always felt Irish, and when I when I first um, uh, when I when I was in Dublin, I was born here. That's how I used to talk, and then I slowly but surely came to England. And in England, in Camden Town, I was Irish, and then I heard people talking English like that, you know. So I started talking like that. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I was like that, very very English. But still, when I went home to see my mum and dad up the road in Camden Town, I spoke like that. See? Yeah. So I kept talking like that. And then some, <laughs> I heard people sometimes talking like that. Yeah, yeah. So I began to talk uh, very like theirs, you know. <laughs> oh, hello. So lovely to see you. I'm delighted to see you. And then talking like that. Well, I'm, I'm, I had an accident last night oh. and fell off the back of the car and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I, I saw it all like that. And on Arena, producer Noel Pearson, who had worked with Gambon on Dancing at Lunasa. I 
think I danced with lunacy, played the priest, mm. and he mm. was extraordinary because he never, he never didn't take anything very seriously, you know. And he's always joking, he's chatting up the, the women, the girls in the show, and then he'd fall around the place laughing. But he, he was just um, an extraordinary actor insofar as that he didn't take life too seriously, you know. Now, that was to me, and I knew him for a good few years, and mm. I, we used to meet up in London, and you never know what crack he was up to, you know. And he'd always bring somebody that, he says, is it okay if I bring so-and-so, so-and-so, she's a friend of mine, or he's a friend of mine. And you never know who he showed up. And the last time I met him was a couple of years ago. I'm bringing this one with me for dinner. Is that all right? And I says, I mean, Jeff, when we arrived at the restaurant, he was with Lauren Bacall. <laughs> and I says, what? And she was totally kind of looking at him and awe, and he sat there like, what's the big deal, you know? He was cool. He was lovely. He was great. The late Michael Gambon. And with Ray, Susie Dent, the lexicographer from Countdown. Darcy rubbing his hands with glee. He loves her. And you can hear why. She's quite fascinating. We are going to rapid fire it. First up, by hook or by crook. And if you are from Waterford or Wexford, prick up your ears. Waterford and Wexford counties, yes, and and there's yes. a hook head and there's crook head, and they they claim uh, that by hook or by crook is is because of the two headlands there, that ships yeah, coming I, into Waterford Port. I love that uh, theory, and um, and I have heard it before, and it's incredibly um, seductive. I think, <laughs> um, were it not for actual records of the phrase hook or by crook, um, right. in old. Um, uh, manuscripts from uh, medieval times. Um, we think it goes back to a tradition whereby people, tenants of um, of land, could actually go into um, well, so they they were kind of attached to the sort of manor house, and it was said that they could go into the grounds of the manor or even the grounds of the monarch and take down any firewood that could be reached down by a shepherd's crook, and then cut it down with a bill hook. Ah, right. So they were entitled to their kindling as long as they could reach it easily. By hook or by crook. Yes, yes, Aww. that's where we think it comes from. But I love the Waterford suggestion. Who knows? It's, you know, it's an ongoing thing. We yeah. may find definitive proof one day. But not yet. So what say she about chancing your arm? Yes, oh, I absolutely love this one. And again, it's just one theory. So if you're chancing your arm, you are taking a bit of a punt, aren't you? You mm. are taking a risk. And uh, if this is true, this is one of the biggest risks ever because it's said that the Earl of Kildare um, in the 15th century um, sought to end this ongoing bitter feud between his family and the Ormonds. And he, so it is said, cut a hole in the door of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin and he put his arm through, trusting that the Ormonds would just take it and even shake it by the hand rather than cut it off, which would, of course, be the danger. And they did apparently shake it and the feud was ended. Ah, it's absolutely brilliant. It's a great story. And finally, this rather topical one, Slush Fund. The slush here was the um, fat that was kind of left over from um, the sailors' rations, which they would uh, keep um, and then sell on shore uh, to make candle for, for candle makers, etc., to use. And um, the idea is that they would sell this literal slush, this liquid fat, and they would get some money to spend in the local taverns. And there you have it, slush fund, drinking money. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Freezing cold in Einstein and Tuzel. You the cold maze, say one freezing cold in Einstein and Tuzel. All right. <laughs>